All right, so it's been a minute and we've got a little bit of catch up to play here. Um, as with always, I try to go back over the things that we've covered to date. So going back to the very beginning, just like to make sure everybody's aware of my method, right, of coming to the text, right, for interpretation. This comes from a textbook called Grasping God's Word, written by uh, Scott Duvall and Danny Hayes. So, and these uh, folks have a five-step process that they want you to follow, right, for going to God's Word to understand what God has to say to us today. So the very first step, you see this little village, looks like a biblical times village in the Middle East somewhere, right? The first thing we want to do is to go to the text and understand what did this text mean, right, for the author to the original audience, okay? Because if we go to the text and we come up with some sort of a meaning that the original audience would have never made from it, We've already started off on the wrong foot here. So step one, grasping the text in their town. And then step two, you see we've got this river that's dividing this biblical times village from a rather contemporary modern town today. So this step is called measuring the width of the river to cross. We want to understand what are the differences between them and us, okay? Could be culture, could be language, could be place in redemptive history, especially if we're looking at Old Testament texts. Okay, so understanding what are the differences between them and us, so that in that third step, we can then cross the principalizing bridge. So once we understand what the text meant to them, right, and we've filtered out anything that's really culture or context specific, we're left with a universal principle that's conveyed to us in God's word. Okay, so this principle should reflect the text, okay? It needs to be there. We need to be able to state, place, prove it. It should be timeless and not tied to a specific situation. It shouldn't be culturally bound. It needs to correspond to the teaching of the rest of Scripture, right? As well as consistent with the faithful teaching of the church for 2,000 years. Okay, if you're the first person to ever come up with this interpretation, go back to the drawing board. Right? If nobody else has ever thought it before you, you probably haven't figured out right, what the text is saying. All right, and that leads us to step four, which is consulting the biblical map. Right? So um, we're trying to understand how does this principle fit in with the rest of the teaching of Scripture. Right? So we're going to look at the rest of the Bible to make sure that the principle we've arrived at is consistent. Okay, so this is a point where, for instance, our, our friends who uh, worship with the Jehovah's Witness Church really fall short, right? They go to Colossians, they read about Christ being um, the firstborn, right, of, of creation, and they take that to mean that Jesus is a created being. And yet, when we look at the rest of the testimony of Scripture, we see that that simply doesn't hold up. Right? And so the fifth step is grasping the text in our town. So once we've understood what it meant to them, we filtered out anything that is very culturally specific, right? so that we've arrived at a universal principle, we've consulted with the rest of Scripture and with church history, now we're able to say, how do we apply that principle to our contemporary world today? All right, which takes us to the work that we've done so far in Jude. So the first question that we wanted to ask is who is the author? Because if we're going to understand what the text meant in their town, right, we need to understand who wrote it and who did he write it to. So 
um, we came to the conclusion that the author of Jude is in fact Jude, the brother of James, the bishop in Jerusalem, and also the brother of our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, He came to believe in Jesus as the Messiah sometime between the resurrection and Pentecost. And during his life, he was serving as an itinerant preacher among the churches in Galilee. All right, so the second question we were asking, who was Jude's original intended audience? So we looked at a bunch of different possibilities, but concluded that Jude must be writing to first-generation Jewish Christians living in Galilee, right? Galilee, the homeland of Jesus, among the churches that had been planted by the apostles themselves. And then third, we want to understand what is the genre. The Bible uh, encapsulates several different genres. We have poetry, we have wisdom literature, we have narrative, we have gospel, we have um, letters as well. So Jude is a rather unique genre and style, right, for Old Testament or New Testament. It's probably closest to the book of Revelation. It fits in this Jewish apocalyptic style that was very popular in first century uh, Palestine among Jews. So this is before the 70 AD destruction of the temple. And Jude is also steeped in Greek speech rhetoric, as well as Jewish Midrash and Pesher hermeneutics. So that goes to show us a lot about Jude, actually. He's a very educated man. He was Jewish. He had been taught right, rabbinical teaching, but he had also been taught uh, Greek wisdom. So the fourth question we asked is, when was Jude written? And we looked at various possibilities and concluded that this is actually one of the earliest books in our New Testament today. Um, written approximately between 48 and 58 AD. This is even before the Pauline epistles. This is before we have the four um, gospels that are being circulated amongst the churches, which helps to explain a little bit why it is that Jude doesn't seem to be referencing the teachings of the apostles elsewhere in the New Testament because they weren't written yet, Okay. Um, So the fifth question we asked, what was Jude's purpose for writing? And he actually tells us the answer to this himself at the beginning of the letter. He indicates his longstanding intention to communicate with his audience. But this intention has been made more urgent by a crisis that's arisen in the churches. So he wants to encourage them, right, contend for the faith once for all handed down which indicates to us that there is a problem that has arisen. So Jude has some opponents that he's writing against in this letter. And he tells us a few things about them. First, he says, long ago they were destined for condemnation. All right, so Jude seems to believe that they were the subjects of prophetic condemnation. And we've located that condemnation in the book of First Enoch. Um, Second, he calls them ungodly people, right? Uh, And this word shows up a lot both in 1st Enoch, which Jude relies upon heavily, as well as in other books um, of the Old Testament, right? And it's always given as a contrast to the righteous. And so Jude is emphasizing his opponent's antinomianism. That is, they want to throw off the law of God, And yet, what is it that Jesus taught during his earthly ministry? He says, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. All right. 
He says that they are perverting grace into sensuality, which most certainly means that they're using grace as a license to engage in illicit sexual practices. And then lastly, he accuses them of denying Jesus Christ. Rather than submitting to Jesus' authority, they have become a law unto themselves. So Jude begins to give us some examples from history of how God has responded to such things in the past. And he provides us with three examples at the first part of his letter. First, he talks about the unbelieving after the Exodus. And this is a reference to Numbers chapters 13 and 14, right? So after being led out of Egypt through the miraculous works of God, right, 10 plagues, these people still are faithless. They don't believe in the power or the command of God, right? And so in this account, in Numbers 13 and 14, they provoked God's wrath and punishment. The second example that Jude provides to us is that of the fallen angels. And this may be a little bit different than the story of the fallen angels that you've heard before. Um, Jude, again, is relying heavily upon this, this extra canonical book of First Enoch, which has an account um, of angels that ties into the flood narrative in Genesis chapter 6. So these angels at some point in time decided to leave their heavenly place and they took human wives and had children, right? And so uh, Judah is saying that these fallen angels, their rebellion against God by abandoning his creational purposes for themselves and also teaching and encouraging others to do the same provoked God's wrath and punishment. So we're starting to see a theme here, right? They were unbelieving, right? They cast off God's will for themselves and doing that provoked God's wrath and punishment. And the third example that he provides to us is the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, whose sexual immorality and pursuit of unnatural desire provoked God's wrath and punishment. So Jude brings several indictments against his opponents. First, he calls them dreamers. And this is definitely intended by Jude in a pejorative way. His opponents seem to be citing some sort of special revelation through their own dreams as a source of final authority for things of doctrine, for things of ethics. Um, and these things actually contradict what scripture and the apostolic faith teaches. Um, second, he says that they defile the flesh. And this phrase appears repeatedly, um, again, in First Enoch. Um, so in Enoch, it's used to describe the sinful rebellion of the angels against God through their abominable sexual acts. And Jude is most certainly using it here to further his opponents, uh, to, to further address his opponent's sexual sin. In this, they're like both the fallen angels and the men of Sodom. And Jude expects that God is going to handle them similarly. Third, he says that they reject authority. Jude's opponents are like both the post-Exodus Israelites and the fallen angels in that they fail to acknowledge their role in the order of God's creation. Rather than submit to their rightful place in obedience to God, they subvert his authority and the authoritative teachings of Jesus in order to pursue their own plans. Fourth, Jude tells us that they blaspheme the glorious ones. Now, his opponents claim to receive divine revelations that explicitly contradict the actual divine revelation of the law 
and the gospel found in the scriptures and in the apostolic faith once for all handed down. They're claiming divine authority to challenge the apostles, the prophets, Moses, and even Christ himself. And this leads Jude to a cryptic reference about the archangel Michael contending with the devil over Moses' body. And that story, again, does not exist in our canon of scripture, and we're told by ancient sources that it was an account from the pseudepigraphal assumption of Moses, of which we have no complete manuscripts today. Jude's main point here is to indicate that even the archangel, even the archangel didn't claim personal authority to bring judgment against the devil. Instead, he said, the Lord rebuke you. But Jude makes clear that his opponents are rejecting the law of God without even understanding what it is or what it means. Now, this may be familiar, right? It's a lot like some of our contemporaries who reject the moral law of the scriptures by citing other scriptures out of context or interpreted in a way that is completely foreign to the authorial intent. Okay, so for example, have you ever been told that you shouldn't cite the moral law unless you also refrain from eating cheeseburgers and wearing mixed textiles? Anybody heard that one? I've, I've heard it a, a few times, and it's really obnoxious. Um, this is a failure to perceive the difference between casuistic and apodictic law. So casuistic being case law and apodictic being an absolute law. So the ceremonial laws had a specific context, which was namely the land covenant in Israel, while the moral law actually transcends that context. So when you go to the Old Testament, uh, if you're reading especially like in Leviticus, right, or Deuteronomy, you often get to these large sections of law where God tells the people what to do. And often it's prefaced by the statement, when you are in the land, do this, right? When you take possession of the land, do this. So that's what we would call casuistic law, right? There's a context for it. And the context is while the people of Israel are living in the land, okay? Whereas the moral law, such as the Ten Commandments, there's no such context, Right? It's not casuistic, it's apodictic, absolute law that transcends time and culture. Perhaps you've been rebuked by someone with the classic, judge not, which is also a failure to perceive the context of Jesus' command. He never said, don't judge anyone ever under any circumstances, period. If you read that in full context, you'll see that Jesus is actually saying not to be capricious in judging your fellow believer. Because when you do that, you will be held to the same standard by which you judge. So if you do judge, you'd better make sure your own life is in good order or be prepared to be judged also as a hypocrite. In fact, there are plenty of other places in Scripture where we're told to do exactly the thing many of our contemporary opponents would call judgmental. For example, in the same Gospel of Matthew where Jesus is quoted for saying, don't judge, he tells us in chapter 18 that if your brother sins, go and tell him his fault. 
If he won't listen to you, take one or two others and try again. If he still won't listen, take it to the church. All right, lastly, what Jude has to say about his opponents, they are condemned by their own carnality. Their lack of self-control in terms of their greed, their power tactics over others, their sexual licentiousness, proves to everyone around them that they are not actually from God. So Jude then offers three more historical biblical figures to which he likens his opponents. First, they walk in the way of Cain, right? Which is a reference to the story about Cain and Abel in Genesis chapter four. Cain was a rebel. He did not believe that God's judgment would come against him. He challenged God's authority in order to live according to his own greed and lust, and he enticed others to join in his sin. Second, he says that they rush into Balaam's error, which is a reference to the story about Balaam and the donkey, right? And Numbers 22, 24, uh, 22 through 24 in, in chapter 31 as well. Now, Balaam was a prophet for money. He enticed others to join him in sin for his own financial gain. Okay, and then third, he says that they perish in Korah's rebellion. Korah's rebellion referenced in Numbers chapter 16. Korah was a priest whose pride led him to reject godly authority, enticing others to join in his rebellion, bringing disaster upon the whole congregation. With that final reference to Korah's rebellion, it's also Jude's intent to demonstrate to his audience a model as established by Moses and Aaron for dealing with those who reject authority and rebel against God's law. First, he says, teach all that God has commanded. Second, warn those who are in error. Third, separate from those who persist. Fourth, intercede on their behalf. And then finally, leave the work of judgment to God. Now, in verse 12, Jude returns to his list of indictments against his opponents. He says that these people are blemishes upon your love feasts, which, as we clarified a few weeks ago, was what they called their celebration of the Eucharist, like what we did this morning before Sunday school. They are eating without fear. Oops. Let's try to go back here. They're eating without fear, though they should be afraid of the judgment of God. And this indictment that they eat with fear implicitly also indicts Jude's audience. How is it that they've allowed these people to continue to eat among them, much less without any sense of fear of the wrath of God to come? So it's their responsibility, as it's the responsibility of any disciple of Jesus, to let their brothers know when they're in sin. This is why Jude is so emphatic at the introduction to this letter and urging his audience to contend rather than passively sitting by, eating and drinking condemnation on themselves, blemishing the gathering of the church. That Jude calls his opponents shepherds may be another case of him weaponizing their terminology against them. They clearly present themselves as leaders in the church, but their behavior betrays them. 
God calls people to servant leadership in his church. And the fact that they're serving themselves rather than the sheep demonstrates that they are not of God. And this leads us to our text this morning from the latter half of verse 12 into verse 13. These are waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Let's pray. Blessed Lord, who caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us so to hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and the comfort of your holy word we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting glory, which you've given us in our Savior Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. All right, so let's begin by talking about these waterless clouds. There are four metaphors that Jude uses to describe his opponents, and this is the first. Waterless clouds being carried about by the winds. Now, unless we've really thought about this for a while, that image probably doesn't invoke much meaning for us today. Most of us are not farmers, so it's easy for us to miss the meaning of this statement. But it would not have flown over the heads of Jude's original audience as it may for us. It's important to remember that in first century Galilee, the local economy was still very much driven by agriculture. Most Galileans during the time of Jesus were farmers or fishermen, or farmers during the farming season and fishermen after the harvest. Um, Plenty took up other trades outside of the agricultural season, but from spring until harvest, most people in Galilee were working the land. Figs, Olives and grapes were the primary crop, though some in the south may have grown wheat as well. From year to year, the economy either boomed or busted upon the harvest. And one major factor in any harvest is rain. Now, in Galilee, the wind blows from the west, bringing the clouds up from the Mediterranean coast, up over the hills, and down into the Jordan Valley. Now, on this modern map, you can see the topography of the land. Most of Galilee consists of rocky terrain at heights somewhere between 500 and 700 meters. Several high mountains are in the region, including Mount Tabor and Mount Marone, which have relatively low temperatures and high rainfall. Now, the Sea of Galilee is there in the center right, and due, to, uh, due west, near Haifa, is Mount Carmel. So from the Mediterranean Sea on the west to the Jordan River on the east, and between Mount Carmel and Mount Tabor is the Valley of Jezreel, which is also known as the Valley of Megiddo. So this is Mount Carmel, and you can get a sense of the elevation up against the sea level from this picture. Here's an image of the Jordan River Valley with the Sea of Galilee off in the distance. Now this is Mount Tabor, and you can see the Valley of Jezreel below. 
And this is another image of the Valley of Jezreel with Mount Tabor off in the distance. You can see the clouds moving from the Mediterranean east towards the Sea of Galilee above the Fertile Plains. So imagine, if you will, looking to the sky above your crops, which are desperate for that water, as heavy clouds roll past, but never dropping an inch of rain. As Solomon wrote in Proverbs 25, verse 14, clouds that fail to deliver the promise of rain are useless. They cease to fulfill their purpose and creation, which is something that Jude has been saying about his opponents repeatedly. So Jude's second metaphor is that of fruitless trees. Just as useless as clouds without rain, trees that do not bear fruit in season fail to fulfill their created purpose. So Jude builds upon this metaphor showing that his opponents have been given ample opportunity to bear fruit. Like a fruit tree that has died back and regrown only to die back again and then uprooted by the wind, they will not ever bear fruit again. To follow that metaphor through to completion, the dead plants ought to be removed to enable healthy plants to thrive. Now, Jude here may be alluding to the teaching of Jesus in Matthew chapter 7. Jesus said, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears a good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. So while the first two metaphors point out that Jude's opponents are failing to deliver the good things that they've promised, his third metaphor points out what they actually do bring instead. He calls them wild waves of the sea. Now just as the pounding waves of the sea bring flotsam and jetsam to shore, Jude's opponents are bringing a lot of junk into the church, especially their shameful behavior. As already mentioned repeatedly, their shameful greed and lust are evident in everything that they do. Jude may here also be alluding to Isaiah, who wrote, The wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up mire and dirt. There is no peace for the wicked, says my God. All of Jude's lists thus far have been concluded with a model of eschatological judgment. In other words, something really bad, um, catastrophic calamity that happens. In his three examples of God's wrath against sinners, he concluded with Sodom and Gomorrah. Entire cities utterly consumed in fire from heaven. In his three examples of people to whom he likened his opponents, he concluded with those who perished in Korah's rebellion, right? Entire families swallowed up by the earth. 
Now he concludes his metaphors with wandering stars condemned to utter darkness. Now, while the previous three metaphors could have a reference in canonical scripture, there's no obvious passage to which this might be alluding. So, again, we can make a strong case that Jude is leaning upon First Enoch. In this case, chapters 18 and 21. Let's look at that together. From First Enoch chapter 18. And I saw a deep abyss with columns of heavy fire, and among them I saw columns of fire fall, which were beyond measure in height and in depth. And beyond that abyss I saw a place which had no firmament of the heaven above and no firmly founded earth beneath it. There was no water upon it and no birds, but it was a waste and a horrible place. I saw there seven stars like great burning mountains, and to me, when I inquired regarding them, the angels said, This place is the end of heaven and earth. This has become a prison for the stars and for the host of heaven, and the stars which roll over the fire are they which have transgressed the commandment of the Lord in the beginning of their rising, because they did not come forth at their appointed times. And he was wroth with them and bound them till the time when their guilt should be consummated, even for 10,000 years. And then from First Enoch 21. Now I proceeded to where things were chaotic, and I saw there something horrible. I saw neither heaven above nor a firmly founded earth, but a place chaotic and horrible. And there I saw seven stars of the heaven bound together in it like great mountains and burning with fire, Then I said, for what sin are they bound? And on what account have they been cast hither? Then Uriel, one of the holy angels who was with me and was chief over them, said, Enoch, why do you ask? And why are you eager for the truth? These are the number of the stars of heaven, which have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and are bound here till 10,000 years time entailed by their sins are consummated. Interestingly, First Enoch also speaks of clouds, trees, and waves, pointing to the order and purpose which, which, with which God created all things. Uh, ben Witherington here uh, says this is likely a reference to planets that appeared to wander from their course or to comets or meteors that manifest an apparently erratic course. Clearly, the author intends this as a metaphorical description of life without God forever. The teachers are thus accused of disorderly, useless, and harmful conduct. All right, so let's take another look here at First Enoch. This is from First Enoch chapter 2. He writes, observe everything that takes place in the heavens, how they do not change their orbits, and the luminaries which are in the heavens, how they all rise and set in order each in its season, and transgress not against their appointed order. Behold the earth, and give heed to the things which take place upon it from first to last, how steadfast they are, how none of the things upon the earth change, but all the works of God appear to you. Behold the summer and the winter, how the whole earth is filled with water and clouds and dew and rain lie upon it. Did you catch that? Clouds, 
with rain. Observe and see how in the winter all the trees seem as though they had withered and shed all their leaves, except 14 trees which do not lose their foliage but retain the old foliage, and from two or three years till the new comes. And again, observe the days of the summer, how the sun is above the earth over against it. And you seek shade and shelter due to the heat of the sun, and on the earth also burns with glowing heat. And you cannot tread on the earth or on rock because of its heat. Next, observe how the trees cover themselves with green leaves and bear fruit. Therefore, give heed and know all his works. Recognize how he that lives forever has made them. And all his works go on thus from year to year forever. And all the tasks which they accomplish for him do not change unless God has ordained. And behold how the sea and the rivers in like manner accomplish their task and do not deviate from his commandments. Not so with you. You have not been steadfast nor done the commandments of the Lord, but you've turned away and spoken proud and harsh words with your impure mouths against his greatness. Oh, you hard-hearted, you shall find no peace. Uh, ben Witherington here again on Jesus' use of Enoch. He says, first Enoch describes all of nature becoming disorderly and lawless just before the eschatological end of all things. And the fate of such star beings is utter and outer darkness. The rhetorical intent and effect of this colorful language was to create a negative emotional response, to create pathos, in this case appealing to one's sense of fear and horror at betrayal and shameful behavior. The metaphors of Jude in verses 12 and 13 provide a powerful sense of mental images and associations which seriously diminish the ethos of the sectarians, especially with regard to their leadership and their teaching roles. And these elicit much negative pathos against them. All right, so we have this final example of things that were created by God to work and function in a very particular way, casting off that divine design, right? And instead turning towards things that please themselves, right? And so Jude is saying this is the case of his opponents, right? They've cast off the law of God. They've cast off the call to holiness, right? God says, be holy as the Lord your God is holy. And yet they've cast that off in order to pursue their own desires, especially their own sexual appetites, okay? And this is all leading up, right, where we're going to be next week together in Jude 14 and 15, which is Enoch's prophecy specifically against Jude's opponents, all right, so we will go ahead and stop there because we don't have time today to get into all of that. So I just wanted to provide a few minutes in case there are any questions, comments, observations from anybody today. Yeah, Joel. Uh, 
Um, I don't believe that the Roman Catholic Church founds it upon First Enoch. I believe that they base it off of a passage um, in one of the Maccabean um, texts that are in the Apocrypha. Um, so I'm, I, I can't speak with any confidence that the Roman Catholic Church has any sort of uh, doctrine founded upon First Enoch. It's not included in their Apocrypha. Um, so the only, there, there are only two churches in, in the world that include First Enoch in their canon, and, and they're both Ethiopian Orthodox. Yeah. Good question. Any other questions? Sounds like a no. So I think we're going to break early. Everybody have a wonderful lunch. We beat the Baptist this week.